Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Look, welcome everyone. It's my um, great pleasure this morning to introduce um, Professor Victoria Farrell-Lines. Um, Victoria is joining us um, here today. Victoria, Victoria is a Professor of Political Science and Distinguished Professor um, at the University of Texas, Arlington. Uh, Victoria is also the um, 2014 uh, Fulbright Flinders University Distinguished Chair. So uh, Victoria, we're based here is it two or three months? Five months. Five months. And you've been here all of all of three days in Australia, yes. you were telling me. So obviously you've managed to navigate your way around um, Brisbane and, as well as Adelaide. So um, now through uh, her Fulbright uh, here in Australia, Victoria's um, going to be examining research into undertaking research into executive foreign policy making with a particular emphasis on uh, the Pacific Rim. And I think Victoria's presentation today speaks very, very much to that. And we were just talking before the introduction about how topical this is, uh, both in a kind of broad context, the TPP, but, but in a very specific context of the Australia-US relationship, uh, given Australia's uh, movement, movement towards concluding the, the troika of FTAs, uh, Korea, uh, Japan, China probably in 2014. Uh, certainly, Korea has already been concluded. Then this is topical, um, certainly from Australia's perspective, but also speaks to the broader U.S. alliance. Um, so, Victoria, without any further ado, I'll hand over to you. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to to thank Andrew and thank the center and thank all of you for inviting me here this morning. As well as I do want to thank the Fulbright uh, fellow program for having me here in Australia, and as he did say, I did arrive just very uh, recently, so I'm still getting my uh, jet lag legs underneath me, so to speak. Um, but it's very good to be with you, and I'm hoping to have a, a grand dialogue with you this morning about some research that I've been very active and actively involved in in the U.S. Um, Primarily, I'm a presidential congressional relations scholar, and I've been doing a lot of uh, presidential foreign policy. So I've been looking at sort of the way in which presidents have tried to deal with the breakdown of the post-Cold War consensus in foreign policy and sort of how, looking at their national security directives and the way in which they try to approach foreign policy, how they're trying to redirect the United States or give some semblance of what it is the United States is wanting to do uh, so it doesn't look like it's flatlining. Uh, certainly 9-11 changed the direction considerably and it uh, put a focus in, in something that the Obama administration certainly we've called the pivot, wanting to pivot back to what I will be talking to you later on is about economic statecraft. Really what I'm going to present to you though is, is some of my research about what's going on internally. Sort of what are the internal impediments to uh, Obama's administration uh, pursuing the TPP, uh, some of the things that are going on within the United States, and what I'm here in, the, in Australia to do is to get your eyes. Uh, the folks that are here on this side, of, in this region. And so I appreciate dialogue, commentary, and uh, additional resources and anything that you think that will help me have the eyes of this region as well. So it'll be much, much uh, grateful, and I know my manuscript will be much benefited from it. So without that, let's get started. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I, and I'll go through this very quickly because I know I have a very um, 
very savvy audience, but I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, when I started this book, I was sort of starting with a puzzle of why is it since the post-Cold War the United States sort of has been floundering, or at least perceived both internally and externally as floundering in foreign policy. Internally, certainly the public is not as concerned because the public doesn't really seem to focus or care about foreign policy, and if anything, they make a lot of hay about, because of the debt and deficit crisis, about um, getting rid of foreign aid, which as many of you know, accounts for less than 1% of our total budget, which, um, but we can't convince the public that that doesn't mean something. And so I'll show you that in just a moment. But really, you know, certainly on what is the United States going to do? And certainly this, this question was pressing, but now is very, very pressing now that we are exiting from Iraq, or exiting from Afghanistan, and certainly with now over the last several days with Ukraine and Russia and Japan's movements, um, we're, we're definitely seeing sort of, you know, Fried Zagaria called the rise of the other. Um, the United States is trying to figure out what it means. Uh, certainly after World War II, the United States was trying to develop itself and develop the structures. Uh, it's attempting, the Obama administration wants to do that. But I want to give that backdrop of just from alliances with none, which is there is still an undercurrent in the United States that goes all the way back to George Washington, which, you know, in his farewell address talked about not having permanent alliances and certainly, you know, having an ocean away from the rest of Europe. It really provided some, some semblance of security. And certainly even Thomas Jefferson, who was sort of seen as that, you know, very robust president who used the Navy in, in the Barbary Wars, he still talked about this entangling alliance. And so there's a faction within the United States um, that still has this sort of, I, I dare to say, isolationist tendencies. Um, isolationism, though, I will talk about has transformed itself over time. Um, early on, isolationism merely meant we stay hermetically sealed and we don't pay attention to those. And we, if we don't get involved, we won't get dragged in. Um, Isolationism in the parties, between the parties as well as the internal dynamics, means more about what's in it for us, meaning what's in it for the American population, um, in the interests of the United States abroad. And if we can, if we can cast that in that context, and the Obama administration is going to attempt to do that, then there's engagement. But there's really still some quite bit of suspect about what we should be doing, how much we should be doing, and how well we should be doing that. So I want to remind you of that past, not because so much mired in history, but you know, history does speak a lot of volumes to where we come from and why it is there's still a yoke of reticence in the United States against this. Um, certainly moving rapidly through, through some very pivotal times here, obviously Harry Truman um, when the Truman Doctrine set that coalition together, uh, set that consensus um, quite well and during the Cold War, and certainly gave us a, a way to understand. But what little people focus on, and they focus mostly on the Truman Doctrine, they don't focus on a little-known speech that he gave that talked about creating great economic cooperatives. Um, he was very interested in a new world order of which economic cooperatives would be very much a part of the creation of this new um, sense of coalition. Now that tended to be under, obviously, undertoned and that tended to get pushed down because security interest obviously rose, you know, in the bipolar world of the USSR versus US and a lot of the security sort of issues sort of overrode that. But I want to remind you that, that even then there was a notion that this economic cooperative should be a part of what we do. And, and certainly um, that theme was picked up again uh, in, by Bill Clinton, um, who again, obviously this is now the fall of the Soviet Union. We have sort of a, 
a lot of the, at this point in time during Clinton's administration, there's a question, is the United States going to be a unipoly power? Um, if not, how is it going to be? Is it going to be the World Cup? What is it going to do? Um, and Bill Clinton sort of tried to redirect Congress in the internal dialogue on, again, to create a system of global expanded free trade. Um, the idea of creating, again, sort of a post-World War II notion of let's create an infrastructure of economic trade of which we build bilateral and multilateral approaches. And if you recall, under the, uh, President Clinton's uh, administration, the uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was languishing. Um, and in 1994, the Republican Party took over both the House and the Senate for the first time in 40-plus years. And when it did so, um, gave some wiggle room, obviously, to Clinton, who was getting a lot of pushback from his own party, the Democrats, especially the environmentalists, um, as well as labor within his own party, who were not in favor of NAFTA. And um, Bill Clinton was, was very deft at sort of co-opting the Republican Party's uh, agenda and pushing through NAFTA with Republicans' help in the, basically getting it through the Senate, ratified through the Senate um, with the help of the Republicans. Now, it's, I bring that up because this is the 20th anniversary of NAFTA, and NAFTA is, is weighing heavily in the minds of the U.S. public as well as many U.S. lawmakers who I will show you a lot of, uh, will show you a lot of data slides coming up soon, and you'll see that um, we're quite in a quandary. Um, NAFTA has not been very good for us in terms of trade. We have trade deficits with both Canada and, and Mexico, um, environmental issues uh, with trucking and other issues. Uh, there's the wage issue, obviously minimum wage issue, which is, is raging again um, in the United States. So there's really, um, I think NAFTA is a really, again, another pivotal point that gives us a sense of about where the United States sort of sees these sort of multilateral agreements and sort of why they're suspect of why they um, don't seem to, to do what they promise. Um, just a really short clip. Some of you probably have seen this, but I think it's quite telling. It's a very, very short clip. This is uh, his very first speech on why he thinks that Asia should be important. Uh, as you indicated, Asia is my first foreign trip since our election in the United States. And Thailand is my first stop, and this is no accident. As I've said many times, the United States it is and always will be a Pacific nation. As the fastest growing region in the world, the Asia Pacific will shape so much of our security and prosperity in the century ahead, and it is critical to creating jobs and opportunity for the American people. And that's why I've made Restoring American engagement in this region a top priority as president. And a cornerstone of our strategy is our strong and enduring alliances. He's a little bit more stiffer than usual there. My apologies. Um, what I really wanted from that clip and why I chose that clip in, in particular is because what you're seeing here is an attempt by uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, to create it what we obviously refer to as intermestic issue, right? To take an international issue of free trade abroad and say that that is in the U.S. interest because we have a, to deal with a middle class that needs to be protected. We need to protect jobs. It means help for internally. It may help our deficit and debt. So it really tying that 
intermestically. So taking a domestic and international issue and trying to marry the two. And early on, this was in early on in 2008, so he really was coming in off his hope and change sort of rhetoric, off his, his election. He was talking about changing the way government works. And he was also here trying to change the way we talk about international issues as a way that could be in the interest of the United States so that the U.S. would not be so, U.S. public in particular, would not be so suspect about these entangling alliances, sort of beating down that sort of old kind of isolationist perspective. Um, as you know, many of you, this is, is, is sort of a, one of the things I think, you know, a lot of people look at the TPP as sort of just in terms of just the scope, the number of, obviously there's 12 Pacific Rim countries and certainly 40% of the world economy. Um, kind of a next generation, and I want to point this out. The Office of Trade Representative, and I had a chance to, to sort of um, investigate this a bit, and really talks about this trade agreement, not in terms of just an agreement, but an agreement that actually, like post-World War II, would set a structure, that a structure of which then could be used as a template to bring in then other countries. And this was a response to why is it that the United States is not con continually to go bilaterally? Why not just go by, continue to negotiate bilateral agreements? Why, why go this route where we have this NAFTA sort of experiment that seems not so good? Why would we possibly want to do this? And, and I think a lot of folks, you know, the response back, at least from the administration, is that if we negotiate this larger structure, this sort of superstructure, then we can create the norms as well as the sort of the the language as well as the principles and the vision by which um, we could then bring in other countries, perhaps bring in China or perhaps bring in other countries who may not be sitting around the table at this point in time, but engage others, um, but engage others on our terms, our terms that we helped create. So again, that, that I wanted to point that out. I think that was very interesting. Just uh, this is some data that I collected just looking at sort of um, it's sort of, it's a little bit light here without the light, but um, my apologies on that. But you'll notice that the positives, if you look at the photo, the positives and negatives, the positives are where we actually have a positive trade balance and the negative trade balance is the negative. You'll notice Japan, we have a negative trade balance, Malaysia. Um, certainly, um, the ones that we're focused most on is Canada and Mexico. So certainly what we're looking at here is NAFTA did not do any it really did not help the United States. Um, and so a lot of people are, are looking at this, and I thought this graphic really helps show uh, a sense for where, mu where much of our trade could be built. Um, there are some trade surpluses, obviously, over here in this region, um, and that could be built upon. And so a lot of uh, equity in the United States that needs, want, needs and wants and desires to be invested, and we have markets here in the Pacific region that needs that equity. Um, and so I think there's that marrying, and sort of this is sort of bringing that home to you a little bit. Um, I created this graphic because I wanted to just show you that there's really a very much, it, with, even within trade, there's an imbalance between services and goods. Um, if you'll notice on the positive side of the, of the, the, the United States is doing uh, meagerly well in services. Um, it's at least positive in that. But in terms of goods, you'll notice we're all in the negative. Um, we're just, our manufacturing base internally has sort of dried up. Um, in fact, there's a lot of consternation by manufacturers. Small businesses are, are sort of re-entering that market. Um, there's a really a push when we did the bailout of the car industry, there was really a push to try to bring more more manufacturing, or at least more percentage of manufacturing onto the U.S. soil. And there's a, you know, that resurgence in the late 1980s, there was a lot of U.S., you know, go U.S. or U.S. Uh, made kind of branding legislation that was 
never got anywhere out in Congress, but sort of was always kept, kept being um, perpetually introduced. And that's something that I think, you know, there's, there's been a lot of thinking about, you know, if we erode our manufacturing base and we become, that's very much going to be problematic going forward. And so we have to figure out a way that if we, if we, if we develop these trade, specifically develop this trade alliance, that it would be a way for us to rebuild that infrastructure and so that we could start exporting as well. And I think that a lot of folks feel that that would lead to jobs uh, and then again, the minimum wage would not be such an issue. I don't know if you paid attention to somewhat to the minimum wage discussion internally, but um, you know, the president just by executive order uh, raised the minimum wage to 10 10, $10.10, that's US dollars. Um, to, for all federal contracts going forward. So that's very controversial. Democrats love it in a midterm year. They love the fact that he did that. Uh, Republicans hate the fact. Um, many people were calling him a tyrant for using executive action, not going through Congress to do that. But um, nonetheless, we're in a midterm election politics, so it plays well. But to be honest with you, um, the middle class is feeling very pressured. And um, it, it is not just the Republicans are really starting to feel some pressure themselves about having to address the fact that the middle class is being sort of squeezed. The, you know, the, the bottom and the top are coming in and we're getting a, a much more a smaller swath and that potentiality is sort of not. So we have a lot of working poor, um, people who are working two, three jobs who just are still not being able to, to make it in the United States. And so this, I think, raises a point which is another factor that in, in this negotiation is that the United States really has interest not just opening markets, but o opening businesses internally. Um, just to give you a quick sense of U.S. merchandise trade with TPP, again, you'll notice um, our exports and imports. The darker line is the exports, the lighter line is imports. And as you can certainly see, you know, um, we're doing somewhat well, but not not what we want to be doing. Again, lots lots of room here for the U.S. to again work on that good side. Cross-border U.S. TPP services and trade. Again, you'll you'll notice this is just sort of the flip side of what I just showed you on the histogram. Um, that you see that there's really a, a lack of. Um, we're really falling behind. Um, I guess is is the main message from all of these graphics. Um, existing trade agreements, and I think this is very very telling. The um, if you look at this graphic, the dark blue are the trade agreements that are in force, and the light blue are the trade agreements that are in process. And if you look at the U.S. line and just focus just on that U.S. line, it looks like we're all done. We're done. And that's not good. Um, and that's what the administration is trying to talk to Congress about and talk to the American people about, is that we cannot be done. In an age of globalized marketplace, of a globalized workforce, that we cannot continue this sort of uh, ignoring um, international agreements, whether they're bilateral or multilateral. Um, we cannot continue to have discussions. You know, discussions uh, around trade not only build relationships, they build trust. So when things like in the Ukraine happen, um, we have, you know, alliance partners, but we have other partners who are willing to step forward and to do sanctions and to, to join in coalitions along these things. The U.S. can't just go it alone, in other words. So this is an avenue by which to open up conversations that can build that legitimacy and trust in a different way than military state, statecraft can. Economic statecraft can open that dialogue. Um, again, uh, just a graphic. I, I just thought it was interesting when I, I was putting together this graphic one day and uh, just looking at that circle graphic of just how much the U.S. is just sort of sitting out there by itself. There's the interconnectivity is all in this region. And another reason why I'm sitting in front of you and why I wanted to, so desperately to get to this region is because I want to know why. 
and why this region, what this region thinks. Um, the U.S. is obviously not spending a lot of time talking about it, and certainly a lot of the officials I've talked to mm, kind of push it off. Um, and I think that that's something that really we we in the United States need a better impression, a better understanding of, and a better understanding of what is driving the dialogue on this side um, in this region. Because I think that lack of appreciation has really caused some, some probably some miscommunication, missteps on, on the part of the United States thus far. Again, just to, to, de to demonstrate to you again the sort of the isolation, how isolated the United States is in terms of these this TPP partners, um, in terms of the other regions and how much they're missing out. Again, these dollars, you know, are very important in a sense that, you know, the U.S. economy is very fragile in some senses, although we're doing, our markers are do much better in the United States. We're doing much, much better than we had been um, when Obama took place in 2008. Obviously, we had the, the largest recession since the Great Depression, but um, we're doing much better, but there's still that deficit and debt problem that we have from the Iraq and Afghanistan and then continuing on. So, and there's really not a lot of appetite in this midterm election year to do anything about entitlements or anything else that might release that pressure. So one way to release that pressure is to open up more jobs and more markets and more businesses and opportunities. And certainly that would help drive down the deficit. Um, and we saw that when our exports uh, started to increase a bit under the sequestration, which is sort of the, those automatic cuts that took place. Um, we saw that you know the deficit started to go down, and people were like, "Oh, this is a wonderful thing." But you know, people put—if you remember, uh, recall—people put that sequestration out there so it would never happen. So, and suddenly now they're falling in love with something that never should have happened in the first place. Um, U.S. rationale behind it—you know—continually, you heard that the president talk about this this area being a critical area, not only for security but for economic growth and well-being of the United States. And certainly, also. It creates a lot of benefits, as I think I've hopefully driven the point home enough about opening new markets and new strategies, but also new ways in which we can have relationships that will allow the United States to relate in other ways than just with, a, with might. Um, failure. Um, in the United States, the rationale, the, the way it's playing out in the United States, and I'm interested to see how, how this is sort of playing out, this, this kind of dialogue on this, in this region, how this dialogue. But internally, the dialogue sort of, if, if, if this fails, if TPP doesn't happen, because we're in a midterm election, and to be frank with you, there is no appetite, um, and I'll show you in a couple of minutes, by the Democratic Party, even though they have a Democratic president who's sitting in the, in the White House, to really take on this, because they don't want to upset their base this close to a midterm election, namely um, labor as well as uh, environmental, although more so the labor, because of, of money and sort of ex external campaign finance money that um, would not come in. But I think, you know, the rationale is, is really going back to the intramestic issue, where it's, it's about U.S. jobs. It's jobs, 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 it's the economy, economy, economy. It's helping us with our deficit and debt. And I think that language that's being used inside is very telling to how the United States is, is approaching it, because when they go externally, that doesn't play very well um, externally. That's not a, a good sort of rhetoric to use externally, um, because, you know, I think every individual as well as every country always starts with what we refer to as the WIFM, what's in it for me. And so, um, you know, starting with uh, we're going to benefit by jobs, goods, and you're going to help us, you know, d deal with our de deficit problem, that internal dialogue doesn't help us very much in the international realm. So, you know, it's, it's selling sort of the same thing. And so, you know, in this world of, you know, globalized communication where you can have things in a, in a nanosecond, um, 
you know, in the international world is hearing us talk about it in this way and feeling as if we are not really legitimately coming to the table with a, with a sort of a, a sense of wanting to deal with the interests of the other countries around the table. Uh, the pivot itself, on one hand, you know, obviously this is just a simple priority objective, but more importantly, again, going back to the theme that I'm, I'm working off of in, in my manuscript, which is this intermestic sort of tie, and again, this, this dialogue that's happening that internally is trying to sell, which is not getting much traction externally, is not, and sort of where are we missing the boat? Um, what's happening, and how are we missing each other, and why are we talking past each other, and why are we seeing traditional alliances of... Uh, partners like Japan and others who are, are pushing back on the United States very hard in some senses, in some cases. So lots of impediments. Obama certainly canceling the trip in 2013 due to the government shutdown and the almost uh, hitting the debt ceiling internally, which would have, again, injured the full faith and credit of the United States, which has already been downgraded once, um, certainly could not have that happen. Uh, it would have been a political nightmare for him to have gone abroad at that time period, but certainly was a lost opportunity. It, there was a much hay uh, played that he was sort of um, missing the boat and, and not really doing what he needed to do internationally, internally. I think if he went abroad, it would have been very, very, it would have been an incorrect move. So he did the correct thing domestically, but internationally he certainly made a misstep. Um, projects a poor image, political dysfunctionality. I think there's a lot of folks that feel that the United States is adrift in foreign policy, don't really have a clear sense of what foreign policy is in the United States. Even the national security strategy that presidents have to give out. If you read the national security strategy for Obama, it is very mixed. There's lots of points. So I think it's, it's very difficult to, for this region to sort of get a, get a clear sense and a clear read about how we're going to sort of balance that security interest and economic interest and bring those together, which has traditionally been something that we've done in this region. Um, a couple of impediments just to mention to you internally that I think are important for us to put on the table for discussion today is just fast track, um, which is also known as Trade Promotion Authority. Now, uh, for those of you who are familiar, my apologies, but I'll, I'll just I'll say a few words about it, just because it is very important in the discussion internally. Trust, trade Promotion Authority of Fast Track is, is uh, legislation originally passed um, in the 1970s and, again, was renewed in a trade act in 2002. And what it does is provide the opportunity for presidents to go abroad to negotiate treaties and come back. And what it does is the Senate has an up or down vote opportunity, and that's it. They cannot amend a treaty. So what it does is it bolsters the president to really have a forceful voice in foreign policy because you know when he's sitting there or his representative is sitting there at the table that that document that you leave with is not going to be amended by the U.S. Congress, or in particular not going to be amended by the Senate since the Senate is involved in the treaty ratification process. Um, that the president is really speaking to terms and that there's a clarity by the other partners that it's a yes or no. And I think that that's, you know, the, Obama has done something which I think is, is very smart on his, on his part, which is use fast-tracked principles to negotiate so far all the rounds of the TPP. So it, he's acting as if he has fast-track or TPA authority, when in, in count, TPA authority has now, um, has now ceased. It's sunsetted. The legislation has sunsetted. Um, in fact, uh, it went through 2007, so anything that was negotiated through 2007 would have been covered by that, but then it sunsetted. So certainly the TPP and the negotiations that are taking place right now are not covered under fast track, even though Obama is acting as if he has it and is negotiating with those principles, but certainly 
Um, as you can see, my list of opposition, you're seeing Democrat, 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 Democrat. Um, Harry Reid, Speaker um, Majority Leader in the Senate, Harry Reid has been very outspoken. In fact, has been one of the, I think, the biggest obstacles for the Democratic uh, President Barack Obama in terms of, of trying to advance. Um, he's willing to change things like the filibuster rule um, and go nuclear on that and change the rules on that, but is not willing to go as far as push trade and promotion authority. Now, also Harry Reid is up for, is dealing with, um, you know, whether or not the Senate will shift hands. Uh, there's really 16 seats actually that are in play and, and sort of six seats that need to be really picked up. So, you know, there's a real sense here that the, Sen the, the Republicans are gunning to get the Senate back in the midterm elections and certainly that would be very problematic for the administration. So, um, Reid and Pelosi, even in the House side, who has been much more supportive, at least early on was much more supportive of the TPP, has even come out lukewarm now uh, as the midterm elections loom large and, and really hoping, I think they're all told, if you look at internal <coughs> dynamics, probably the House is probably going to remain in Republican control. Although what's interesting is now with sort of lack of Washington to be able to get anything done and the rise of this Tea Party or Senator Ted Cruz from my home state of Texas who sort of go to Washington with the idea that Washington and you know, the role of this, this grand debate about the role of government, again, this federalism debate about you know, the national government is not the center of authority, that the state should be the great experimenters. And so that, that debate is not helping you know, with foreign policy, certainly. Um, and so I think that that's something that, you know, is, is very much playing and I think will be contingent on this midterm election. Uh, I think the Democrats would be more willing if they hold on to the Senate to push for trade promotion authority, um, even if they were to uh, still not have the House in hand, I think they'd still be willing to push forward. And I think there's some Republicans who, because of the free trade, free market principles in the Republican Party, there is a, a swath of Republicans who'd be willing to do that, that are very much at opposition right now with those sort of Tea Party, sort of isolationist kind of, you know, let's do our own house kind of subjects. A quick, just sort of, just to give you a sense, this is 2014 um, upcoming midterm elections. Will the Democrats still control the Senate? This is uh, based on the Cook Political Report before I left, uh, actually the day before I left. Um, this has changed actually since I left because there's been two more an announcements. Uh, a lot of committee chairs are announcing, which is, uh, which um, people are making a lot of uh, points about the fact that a lot of these committee chairs are resigning. And, um, but if you really look at it trend-wise, the resignations and the amount of turnover is not as large as people would seem to, seem to be playing it out. It's, it's kind of, you know, the, the number of seats are there. And, and to be frank with you, most of the seats that are really coming into play are not really seats that would flip. Um, so I think that that's something to, to keep in mind as, as a lot of international reports are making a lot about, oh, you know, there's going to be this great upheaval. And I, I'm not really seeing that yet internally, um, just because of knowing the historical trends and knowing that this really is, it looks like there's a lot of activity going on. I think probably mostly because we get committee chairs retiring, that, that makes more, more of a splash than just, you know, a, a member who decides that after 35 years they're going to step down. Um, but I think that that's something to be thinking about. Here internally, I just want to give you a flavor of what the American public is thinking. Um, and, and this is a, from several um, public opinion polls that have been put in the field over the last year, in fact last fall, um, is where these come from. And there's a lot of questions about, um, 
in particular, I pulled out the questions of most important, I thought, for our discussions, which is the majority of the U.S., uh, the question was, mind its own business internationally. And you'll notice that that, that trend line is uptick. We're all the way up to 52% of American public who have been surveyed. Um, and this is a, a plus or minus three um, significant poll. So this is a quite reliable poll. And um, so it it's really shows that that sort of new type of isolation kind of strain is sort of holding. Um, and I think a lot of people, because it, of the economic crisis, I think we have a tendency of seeing as the economy doesn't do as well, you see much more of that pullback. And so you're seeing that pullback. The question is whether or not over the next year, um, after the elections play themselves out and after the economy sort of seems to be riding its way a little bit, if that will dip down again and there will be some latitude. But right now, at this, the height of which um, Obama would really like to be negotiating at this point, um, he really does not have, he has a weary public. Um, also, you'll notice on the other side, there's a lot of war fatigue. Um, the public is tired. They're tired of international engagements. And so the mere discussion of, of getting involved in sort of the Pacific region and, you know, getting involved in, in even though it's a trade agreement and a trade pact, they, they hear, oh, we're getting involved in yet another region, we get another thing. And certainly now with Russia's move into the Ukraine and Crimea, I think there's, you know, now there's even a distraction there, which is cer certainly making that, fanning the flames of this sort of, fatigue of, oh, yes, yet again, we're having to deal with yet another issue. Um, so this, that's also really making it difficult for the administration to push this, push this forward. And certainly, if that's the case, then it makes it very difficult to use the bully pulpit as a way in which to then gain traction and, 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 uh, and to gain legitimacy then at the table, to sit at the table with those partners in this region. And again, just to give you a sense, there is this sort of return to this entangling alliance with none kind of proposition. Um, just give you a sense, this is Pew Research Center, did, did a, a survey back um, at the end of last year, and you'll notice here that people think it's good that we're exposed internationally, um, as you can see, but there's a lot of sort of consternation about what that means, um, very limited in nature. Also, there's a mixed views on the specific impact, you'll notice on the, the uh, graphic on um, your right, you'll notice that there's a, particularly the second line, more U.S. companies setting up operations overseas. You'll see that it mostly people be, believe that mostly will hurt us. Um, and that certainly, again, with a, with a trade pact of this magnitude, there's a real concern of exporting jobs over, overseas because we did see an exporting of jobs to Mexico after NAFTA. So I think, and we did see a lower, you know, a real lowering of wages. So I think there's a real concern amongst the American population that if we do do this pact, you know, people don't think about this grand structure that would help us, you know, the long term. They think the short term, and that, that sort of, I think, is problematic. Again, in terms of issue salience, I just want to give you a sense about where the American public is on this. And you'll notice, you know, I, I had to circle it because it's down so far uh, to kind of draw your attention to the fact that you know, the economy is a number one in the minds of the people um, internally. And so, you know, foreign world affairs is, you know, about 50% of the population think that. But when we talk about you break out world affairs and break out to what that means, you know, if you break it to the question of promoting favorable trade policies for the U.S. and foreign markets, again, you notice that 69 Republicans, 65 independents, 65 Democrats. So there's a real, real mix here. There's a real, a real tension here. 
Um, and for the United States elections, the independents are what we care. You know, we've got hyper-partisanship in Congress. We've got extreme polar polarization within Congress, extreme polarization within the parties, so that that middle independent voter is what's up for grabs, and that's a very small slice. Um, but as we saw in the election of 2000, that, you know, um, a precinct here, a district there, a congressional district here can make the difference of who's president, who's not. So that's really what we're looking at. Um, and just, again, uh, to give you one last sense, there's a real sense that trade agreements don't equal jobs. Um, again, and just to give you a sense over here, create jobs, hire more people, only about 22% of the American population sort of believe that that's the case. They really think, you know, there's still that sort of growth of this idea that's cut back foreign aid, cut back treaties, let's, let's cut away from that, let's reinvest in infrastructure, reinvest in, you know, um, what we need internally. But the problem with that is to reinvest in that, we need capital and we need, obviously, the technology and some of the, the things like if you want to bring smart trains, um, it's being done much better in this region than it's being done then it's by our engineers. And so we're borrowing, tech, you know, that kind of technology transfer would be fantastic. And certainly we don't want to be left out of those types of things. Um, and again, you know, this very much, you know, most people, when you ask them what do you really want them to do, and, and this was a question that was presented in random order um, and random generated, the law that would lower tax rates for businesses and manufacturers that create jobs in the U.S. So that's really what they're looking at is tax policy and tax policy that helps Again, U.S. jobs. So I go back to that, hearkening back to the fact that Obama really is looking at these things and is trying to be astute by making that intermestic connection between domestic and foreign relations and trying to do that valiantly, but, you know, again, is not having that traction because of, of some of the internal dynamics that I've demonstrated to you. So some of the things that just 2014 and beyond, I, I wanted to kind of throw this up as a way to, to sort of jump into questions. Um, it's just... Even if negotiations are completed, as I think I've, I've demonstrated to you, midterm election 2014, it's on hold. TPP is not going to, to move until we get through November. So that's a reality. That's an internal reality we have to deal with. It's an internal reality also in a sense that Obama could accomplish some of, of the TPP negotiations um, with unilateral action, maybe through executive agreements um, between but again, that would be government to government, um, and that would be bilateral, and that would undermine the Obama administration's desire to not do that bilateral discussion, but that creating that greater infrastructure of which we set rules. So there's really reticence by the administration to try to even use executive action, which this president had to use executive action in turn most internally. In fact, I think it's interesting, you know, two weeks ago, right after the State of the Union address, he was considered a tyrant for wanting to use his pen in executive action. And, you know, in the last, uh, in the U.S. news, at least in the last week or so, and especially since um, Russia's action in Ukraine, now he's, you know, seen as this feeble president who's not been able to do much in foreign policy. So I think he's sort of a whipsnap in terms of having, you know, his personality being questioned here. Um, there's changing dynamics. Um, one of the things I think is really important for us to pay attention to uh, globally, internationally, as well as in domestically, if you've taken a look at the budget proposal that was just dropped on Tuesday, in, um, and again, if, if you recall, the president has to submit a budget each year, which certainly is usually by Congress hailed DOA or dead on arrival, and they sort of just, and, and Congress really, they just negotiated a two-year agreement, so they really have no appetite really to work on the, the president's budget. But it is interesting. It does signal to the Congress what the president's priorities are. And if you look at Secretary Hagel, in particular, Department of Defense budget, we had always had a Department of Defense budget that planned for two ground wars and one holdoff. 
Um, and if you look at this year's budget proposal, what they're really proposing is quick action, so no more two ground wars, a quick action force, and then a hold off and a reduction, which would mean significant reductions in, in the Army and a significant reduction. And, and with a vet veterans population, which you, as you might imagine, given the Iraq and Afghanistan um, incursions, um, has grown exponentially, which means that internal interest is very, very uh, large, and so that pressure is very, very hard. So um, that did not play well. Um, did not play well internally. Again, I don't see much action happening in it, but I think it's telling in a sense that it does signal that the United States is trying to reshift its priority away from sort of military statecraft to economic statecraft. And, and certainly um, in the last weeks before I left the, the country, there was real consternation about Japan. Um, you know, Japan has been, uh, been obviously connected intimately with the United States since World War II. Certainly uh, defense-wise, they're very well connected with us, obviously. But, um, you know, with that, Japan really pushing back uh, on the United States, and spe especially in TPP negotiations, this last round on agricultural issues in particular, um, there's significant pushback on that, it, it, so much so that, you know, the, you know, the leader in Japan has come out and said, well, you know, perhaps you, we should negotiate the TPP without the United States to bring in the U.S. after, which certainly um, did not play well in Washington. Um, and in Washington, uh, the ambassador actually from Australia uh, was recalled um, and uh, Secretary Kerry obviously is, is making appearances and certainly um, this upcoming meeting um, here in Australia will be significant and the President has made it clear he will be attending that meeting because he wants to make that clear that uh, to our alliances and to our friends, I use air quotes around that, that uh, the United States is watching and is paying attention and is very much wanting to be a part of the structure and is not going to have that type. So um, I think, you know, Japan even negotiating the bilateral agreement with Australia, which has been something, you know, that obviously is on the radar screen internally, there is some concern that if Japan gets that done and gets that done fast, as Andrew pointed out, you know, that's coming probably in 2014 conclusion, um, there's a real concern that that will mean that the United States is then not able to negotiate principles favorably that some of the agricultural issues and some of the, the rubs that we've had with Japan, Japan will be able to set the parameters and then the U.S. will have to figure out a way around sort of the internal dynamics uh, to deal with that. So that's, that's a real rub. With that being said, so are some of my sources. I'd love to just have a dialogue now and I'd love to hear what you have, your thoughts. I'd love you to help me uh, put my feet in your shoes and my eyes in your eyes and see from this region um, and hopefully... Uh, my eyes have helped you see a little bit about what's going on internally in the U.S., but I'm, I'm interested in a dialogue now. I should caution too that Australia has actually been involved in bilateral negotiations with Japan and FTA since 2005. Absolutely. So I wouldn't, we shouldn't hold our breath until 2014 will be the year. Well, you know, I, I think... I think your point is well taken, though. I think there is a concern because, you know, it, yes, it has been languishing since 2005, but I think there's a real concern. At least Japan has made it clear that they want to conclude that this year. Yeah. And I think to put added pressure on the United States um, to kind of say, you know, give in on some of these agricultural issues in the TPP structure, otherwise we're going to go it alone, and then we're going to make it more difficult for that. So I think, yeah, I think, I, I hear you, Andrew, but I think that's also another negotiating point for Japan to try to get the United States to cave on some of the, the structure they want. Okay, let's jump to questions. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au.
forward slash podcasts.